and then we have to find out if people can actually see us can actually tell that this is actually live streaming and then and then we'll we'll get started okay. um That's great. so someone has to confirm our existence as i always joke about them i guess it's relevant to what we were talking about before they need to collapse the wave function so they need to observe us to know that we exist sort that Let's out that happens uh, yeah yeah exactly uh all right i think we're live okay hi everyone i'm fraser kane i'm the publisher of universe today i've been a space and astronomy news journalist for over 23 years and well, that's a very specific number um anyway uh so i was uh researching uh, a bunch of new projects coming out of nasa's NIAC program and just other new ideas that nasa is working on and i came across one project that i thought was really cool it's this idea of building telescopes in space made of fluid and I'm sure this is going to require some explaining. And so to do so, I brought on a principal investigator behind this project, uh, Dr. Edward Balaban. Edward, welcome to the show. Thank you, Fraser. Great to be here. Uh, so I guess, can you give people an introduction? Who are you? What do you do? Well, I, uh, I'm a researcher at NASA Ames Research Center. And my uh, main field of work is actually very different from astronomy and space telescopes. I work on uh, artificial intelligence. Right. And my day job is actually working on the Viper mission, which will land a uh, rover uh, on the moon at the South Pole uh, in 2023. So, but uh, astronomy has always been an interest of mine. And I, um, uh, uh, on, on my drives to work, actually, I listen to uh, a lot of astronomy podcasts, including Fraser's and, and <laughs> oh, oh, wonderful. Okay. So, uh, well, you have an advantage then. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and that's, um, that's how I sort of develop a side project of, uh, of flute. Uh, and the idea itself came about uh, very accidentally. Um, it's, I, I have a, a very good uh, close friend uh, who is a professor at Technion, Israel Institute of Technology, and his field of research is microfluidics. Um, and a, a couple of years ago, he was visiting with his family. We went for a family picnic, and as people usually do on family picnics, uh, we were talking about microfluidics and the work that he's doing in his lab. Uh, so his name is Professor Moran Berkovici, and he was telling me that they're doing work in labs on a chip uh, where microscopic droplets of fluid are being pushed through uh, channels, uh, through reconfigurable channels for chemical and medical analysis. And he was uh, telling me about the work that they're doing in thin films. And for whatever reason, at that moment, I had a brain glitch. And having listened enough to uh, Fraser and Pamela and Paul M. Sutter uh, on podcasts, I blurted out, well, um, why don't we uh, do something similar, but in space and build a giant space telescope? Uh, so, so obviously, he thought that. Um, 
must be having a heat stroke. Right. Uh, so we, um, but being a, a nice guy and a good friend, we uh, uh, brainstormed the idea a little bit more uh, and came up with some initial implementation uh, uh, possibilities. And then he promised that he'll think about it some more. And he went back to uh, Israel and discussed the idea with his students and postdocs. And then a few months later, he uh, calls me up and says, well, you know what? Remember that conversation we had uh, at the park, uh, uh, at the picnic? Uh, I think we should talk. It's, uh, <laughs> it's not that crazy. Yeah. So it turned out to be a viable idea. And um, we uh, were lucky enough to get some seed funding and, and get it rolling. So, so what uh, is the kind of the core physics mm -hmm. going on here that led you to think about the possibility of, of deploying a fluid in space for a telescope? Right. Um, the initial idea changed a little bit and the physics behind the idea changed uh, somewhat uh, to, to its present form. Uh, initially, what attracted us to the idea is that um, you can manipulate fluids in space into a desired shape, right? into uh, astronomically interesting shapes. Uh, and also fluids are very smooth, right? So you don't need the usual branding and polishing that you have to do to um, mirrors and lenses for traditional telescopes. Uh, and initially we thought we would manipulate the fluids uh, using electromagnetic forces, right? And, and by utilizing spinning to get them in the right shape. But turned out that the physics can actually be even simpler. And this simplification uh, was thought of, the credit goes to uh, Dr. Uh, Valery Frumkin from Technion, where he realized we don't even need the electromagnetic forces or, or spinning. We can simply stretch fluids inside a frame. And then naturally they will want to um, assume a, uh, the shape of a spherical cap uh, in microgravity. As if, you, um, if you imagine a, uh, a droplet of fluid on Earth, right? So if a droplet is small enough, it will remain a sphere. Right. Uh, if, and the diameter, uh, the maximum diameter for that to happen is about two millimeters. So that's the... Um, uh, uh, capillary uh, length of, of um, water, for example. Uh, if we um, if we make it larger, it'll start getting squished with gravity. Right. right? So spheres are a useful um, shape for making lenses or mirrors. If it starts getting squished, not so much. So if we uh, and we can eliminate gravity to make useful spheres, useful lenses or mirrors out of liquids uh, with a couple of different methods. So on Earth, we can use neutral buoyancy, right? And we can place 
our uh, lensing or mirror liquid into an immersion liquid that neutralizes the effects of gravity. And that's how we got our first lenses and mirrors made in oh, the lab. Okay, so sorry, to just understand. So you would like, you would have a bag, you would fill with your fluid, you'd put it into a liquid that has the same specific density, and then mm -hmm. it would it would be able to retain that shape of a sphere. That's right. right. Only we didn't use a bag. Uh, what we used is a frame, uh, a, a simple circular frame, where we can uh, uh, use our lens liquid. Let's uh, use lens as an example. And uh, as long as the uh, liquid that we use have good adherence properties to the material of the frame, it'll stretch inside of that frame. And then we can um, place it inside of that immersion liquid and it will retain, assume the shape that we want. Now, uh, now so sorry, just I'm tr trying to just understand this. Like, like this frame is made of some kind of rigid, like carbon fiber or something. Or metal. Metal or, or, or whatever. And yeah. is the is the liquid filling the entire inside or is it just following the outside of the frame and leaving a gap on the inside? Uh, it's filling the inside of the frame. So we've, uh, if you imagine a circular frame, we fill in the, the entire circle with the borders of the liquid touching the frame, attaching to the frame. Right, right. Okay. And then, um, and this way we can create um, uh, 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 lenses of a desired uh, configuration by varying the geometry of the frame and varying the volume of the liquid that we're inje injecting inside of the frame. So, um, and uh, visualize a wide frame, uh, sort of like a wedding band, but uh, with wide rims. Mm. And if we fill it with liquid, and initially we fill the entire inside of the frame, and then we can suck some of that liquid out, we can form a concave lens. If we put a little bit more volume in, then uh, we can form a convex lens. Hmm. And uh, by um, changing the geometry of the, um, uh, of the frame, we can achieve other types of um, uh, uh, lens surfaces, including non-axis symmetric lenses. So I'm sort of thinking about the kinds of lenses. You mentioned a spherical lens, which has has its place. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, when you have like a, you know, like a traditional telescope with a glass lens on it, mm -hmm. then, you know, you've got a refractor. The shape of the of the lens inside the refractor is, I don't know if it, is it parabolic in shape? Is it, I'm not sure what the actual curvature of the, of the lens is to make it do its job, but spherical can work, parabolic can work. Um, and, and so you can have this liquid take on these different shapes, That's right. as long as they're either floating in a, <laughs> in a neutral pool on Earth, or in space, or in space, or in exactly. space. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's so then, I guess, how would this theoretically compare to more traditional methods of building a telescope? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, one way to compare 
uh, is by looking at surface quality that we can get uh, of, of the lens uh, or mirror. Um, and even in our initial experiments, we were able to achieve a superb surface quality um, uh, of, of the lenses without even trying very hard. So uh, the first lenses were made literally in a janitor's bucket uh, that you know, uh, the guys had in the lab. Um, and because of the natural surface tension of liquids, uh, we can achieve essentially a molecular level smoothness of, of the surface of the lens. Uh, when we first tried uh, making lenses and we made them out of liquid polymers, which were solidified using ultraviolet light, and we put them under a uh, digital holography microscope, uh, we got some pretty good numbers about five nanometers RMS in surface roughness, which is, uh, which is quite good. Uh, is that For sorry? Is that comparable to like a traditionally ground glass mirror or glass um, glass lens? To give you some examples, um, five nanometers sounds uh, like a very small amount. Right. Uh, our eyeglasses are polished typically to about hundred nanometers of surface roughness. Just because our eyes are not very good sensors, it doesn't matter. Um, the uh, very high quality professional optics, very expensive, are typically about five nanometers okay. surface roughness. Uh, very, very high end optical lenses used for high end lasers where uh, it's really important to have low surface roughness, uh, otherwise uh, they'll overheat, are polished to uh, below one nanometer wow. of uh, surface roughness. Um, and the main mirror of James Webb is polished to about 20 nanometers of surface roughness, just because it's such a large uh, mirror. So uh, at first we got five nanometers of surface roughness. And, but then um, we found a very quick and easy way of improving that, uh, to, to improve on that. Uh, and that was by sticking the sample under an atomic force microscope instead of the digital holography microscope, which turned out was at its measurement limit. Oh, okay. And, <laughs> and under the uh, atomic force microscope, we found out that uh, the surface quality is actually below one nanometer of surface. Roughness. Oh, well, so, so that you could also fire lasers through it. No problem. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. So, um, so yeah, it, it, we get superb surface quality without trying very hard. And another nice property of this method is that um, we can uh, make dramatically larger lenses and mirrors than what's possible with traditional methods because the same physics hold whether the lens is one centimeter in diameter or one kilometer in diameter. So theoretically, as long as we have enough liquid and we have a large enough frame, we can make very large lenses and mirrors. And so, and so just to clarify then, it is the laws of physics that are making the fluid achieve this level of smoothness, not yeah. the microfluidic chambers that you're using, the shape of the frame, any of that. It is purely that, that 
in space, fluid wants to take this shape, and you just let it. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. So then is the is the frame like when I think about the frame, you know, imagining you scale that up, that seems like a fairly expensive does the shape of the frame have to be a nice perfect circle or can if that's a little off, will that change the 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 quality of the lens? Right. Uh, the frame architectures is something that we're actively working on right now. And you're right, from an engineering point of view, scaling them is a little bit of a challenge. But the good news is that they don't have to be perfect. Mm. So we, we, we can have, um, uh, you know, an imperfect geometry of the frame, which will get compensated uh, by the properties of the liquid. So we may have uh, some edge effects uh, if we, we have gaps in the frame or it's not perfectly aligned. But then uh, going towards the center of the mirror or, or lens, uh, all of these effects will get smoothed out. Now, now, you mentioned that you were curing the, I'm sort of thinking like a resin, like a 3D printer that you, you cure the mm -hmm. resin and pull out your little character that you were 3D printing or whatever um, with ultraviolet light. Would you be wanting to cure the liquid or would, would it remain liquid over the long term? That's another great question. So we are currently pursuing both possibilities. Oh, interesting. Uh, but we are um, uh, focusing more on retaining liquids in their uh, liquid form. And I'll, uh, both approaches have their pluses and minuses. Um, retaining our mirror, let, let's say mirror in its liquid form uh, allows us to um, adjust this geometry uh, dynamically if we need to. Uh, it's also uh, robust to uh, external uh, uh, hazards like uh, micrometeorites, right? They'll just go through the liquid and no mm. harm done. Uh, we can uh, adjust not just the geometry of the frame, but also the volume of the liquid, potentially changing the focal length dynamically. On the other hand, um, uh, you know, make solidifying our lenses or mirrors also has some benefits. Uh, it, it adds to the structural rigidity of the frame, so we don't need as um, uh, uh, as mm. much of a structure for the frame itself. So the mirror or the lens will contribute to the stiffness of the overall uh, uh, observatory, uh, but we need to figure out a way to cure uh, our lens or mirror in a uniform enough manner that it retains the desired shape as we're solidifying it. And I'm assuming you would be using the ultraviolet radiation that's coming from the sun. Would that be the, would that do the trick or would, it, would that not be intense enough? Uh, no, that's, that's one potential source. And we're uh, looking into that. We are, uh, also considering other materials uh, aside from polymers for doing this. Uh, for example, uh, gallium is a candidate for, uh, for our mirrors. Uh, gallium uh, is a metal that has some really nice properties for our application. 
Uh, it's highly reflective. It's actually even more reflective than mercury. Uh, it uh, has a, a very low uh, melting temperature. Pure gallium melts at about uh, 25 degrees Celsius. So you can hold it in your hand and it will melt. Uh, some alloys of gallium have even lower melting temperatures below zero degrees C. So uh, one of the architectures that we're considering is using liquid gallium that we inject into the frame, let it form uh, the desired shape, and then uh, shield it from the sun and let it cool down and solidify. Huh. And that will form the... Uh, That's interesting. Or, or maybe if it does make sense to leave it as a liquid, just leave it in the sunlight. It'd be like the opposite of James right. Webb. Just keep it warm. Right. And your telescope will will retain its its shape. Uh, so then, how how far do you think this scales up? Uh, as I mentioned, the physics should scale up, you know, uh, up to the relativistic limits. Uh, but there are practical limitations in in terms of frame building a lot large enough frame, uh, having enough liquid to to fill it. Uh, so at the moment, the um, architecture that we're shooting for is a 50-meter mirror. Yes, please. So 50-meter hmm? mirror would be amazing. I mean, that's yeah. bigger than Webb. I mean, that's yeah. that's Louvre size. Oh, that will be even larger than the yeah. current uh, yeah. uh, Louvre concept. Yeah, the the Lubex. So that would be that would be bigger. That would be that would be incredible. So then, yeah. like like. I'm just sort of trying to imagine the whole spacecraft from from a, you know, holistic sense here. You've got you're going to need all the other stuff. You're going to need the bus, the science instruments. You're going to need the secondary mirror if if it's if it's acting as a reflector, solar panels, et cetera. How how would you envision the the actual spacecraft looking? If you could like fly out in space and take a look at it after it's fully configured itself, what would it look like? Sure. Uh, actually, it might look like something uh, what I have in my background. Yeah, uh, so that's background one here. of the. Uh, let me move a little bit. Yeah, hold on. Yeah, uh, remove my background here. Yeah, okay. So that's one of the architectures that we're. And so, considering. sorry, just and for podcast listeners, I'll just describe this as like this giant, I'm going to guess 15 meter. Um, floating fluid mirror and then down at the very bottom you've got a the spacecraft part the solar panels the everything and then you've got a secondary detector i guess floating free in in uh, concert with it yes and the picture does not depict the focal length of the main mirror correctly we, we have to do it just to fit it all in, into one frame right uh, but the secondary spacecraft would station keep at the focal length of the uh, main mirror and collect the light, pass it through the uh, secondary mirror, through the optical uh, uh, path, through a coronagraph, for example, and to the detector. And so it would be, it would like be detectors and it would be trans, you know, doing the processing, transmitting the data all in one part and it would be just like two spacecraft flying in in tandem together that's right and i guess yeah. it would be able to to shift it. and so then i guess 
would you be able to change like if you did keep it fluid would you be able to change the lens on the fly by changing the size or shape of the frame to give you a, a, a wider field of view say or a a more narrow field of view and then I guess the secondary spacecraft could fly could shift its position to adapt to its new configuration I guess I'm sort of thinking about like the the very large array in in New Mexico where they have all these these telescopes act like a big interferometer but they can shift the size of it depending on what they're doing if they're looking at something really small or something really big that that's exactly the idea that uh we are going for in our uh, liquid liquid mirror uh, uh, concept, where we can change the geometry of the frame, we can add more liquid or remove some of the liquid to change the focal length. Wow! And, and the secondary spacecraft would adjust its position to uh, uh, to the appropriate distance. That would be that would be incredible because you think about like some of them like the field of view of Hubble or the field of view of James Webb, but sometimes you want to do a nice big survey with say, Nancy Grace Roman, and it would be amazing to, I'm sort of thinking like a geologist, like when a geologist goes to work, they want to be able to see some rock, but they also want to see the surroundings of the rock. Right. And to be able to do the two things would be kind of amazing that you could take a wide angle view of a region, and then reconfigure your telescope to zoom in on one specific location, that would be amazing. That'd be incredible. Yeah, that's so, really neat. Um, yeah, that, you know, that's one of the reasons why we're excited about this uh, uh, concept and uh, investing a lot of effort into uh, uh, making it a reality. So we, we've had our uh, parabolic flights on uh, zero G aircraft to prove out the concept. We had ISS experiments to uh, test out the fundamentals, and so far, everything is is looking good. So we're we're excited. Now there was a test fairly recently with the mm -hmm. Axiom One mission. This was the private space flight. Four astronauts flew to the International Space Station. They actually tested out this idea for you on the station. So what happened? That's right. Um, we had two experiments, two uh, distinct experiments on the space station. Uh, one was basically uh, reproducing our lab experiments where we created uh, solidified lenses. Uh, in the lab, we did it um, using neutral buoyancy. In space, we did it without the immersion liquid. Uh, and that worked out really well. It was amazing to see um, how exactly the same thing happened in space as we saw in the lab. The uh, polymer was injected into a frame. It settled into the nice spherical cap shape. Then it was subjected to a UV light. And in, in about a minute or two, the lens solidified and was taken out of, out of the uh, UV chamber. So we made uh, several lenses using UV curing, and they came out uh, quite well from what we could tell. Uh, we also made some larger lenses using thermal curing, using thermally curable polymers. Uh, and then we also had a um, more of a fun, we called it scientific slash educational experiment where we um, uh, used water 
to form you know, very large, about 50 centimeter, 40 centimeter lenses, just using a simple frame and uh, retaining that lens as a liquid lens. And we showed how we can remove some of the liquid or add liquid and change the focal length. Wow. Um, that's really cool. Now, the, the lenses that were made on the station, you haven't got them in your hands yet. You haven't gotten them back from space yet. Not yet. Yeah, um, we are expecting to get them back sometime in July on uh, uh, the uh, cargo resupply mission 25. When it returns back to Earth, we'll get our lenses and then we'll um, analyze them at uh, NASA Ames. We uh, will look at how close to the spherical cap geometry we got and uh, examine the surface roughness. We uh, will do that using the anatomic force microscope this time. Uh, and uh, yeah, we're, we're looking forward to getting them in our hands and uh, actually examining them up close. So, so let's say that you did have a, say a 15 meter telescope, what kind of volume of liquid would you need to spread across that size of an area? I'm, how That's, heavy would it be? Uh, another great question. So uh, in the simplest form, uh, we can have just a simple ring frame, right? And then uh, let's say we want to form a mirror and we would have, we, we would need less volume of liquid for a mirror than for a, a convex lens, obviously, right? Mm. Because, you know, it's concave. Uh, so with a simple frame, we would need quite a bit of volume, but, uh, there are some, uh, tricks that we can use to reduce the volume of, uh, of the liquid. So if you can imagine bisecting that, uh, circular frame from the top to the bottom with a plane, with a floor, right in the middle of that frame, then we would need, um, half as much liquid while uh, on one side of that uh, floor, we would still have a perfectly spherical uh, shape of the lens, right? On the business side of our uh, lens or mirror. Uh, now, if we imagine making this floor follow a roughly spherical surface, right? So that it, uh, sort of matches the desired uh, shape of our mirror more closely, then we can reduce the volume of the liquid required even further. So um, in our um, more recent concepts, we are um, considering using a, a layer of liquid as thin as about, you know, one centimeter, so that that rests on that frame floor and forms the smooth surface of our mirror without needing you know, a, a lot of liquid. It, it'll still be quite a bit of volume and mass. As you can imagine, if you take an area of a 50 meter mirror uh, and uh, a one centimeter thick layer of liquid on top of a floor inside a frame, it'll still be a couple tons of liquid depending which liquid we, we use. Uh, but that's a lot more manageable than using a hollow frame. 
So what about wavelengths? Mm -hmm. I mean, what would this work with and where would it not be able to, to image anymore? What what wavelengths do you see it being best used for? Right. Uh, so as of now, I don't think we can do x-ray. Uh, but uh, everything else might be possible. Uh, so it, it will depend on the uh, liquids that we use, the temperature at which we can keep our, our mirror. Um, for the moment, we're mostly focusing on uh, infrared and uh, visual range uh, astronomy. Uh, but ultraviolet is not out of the question. So uh, we think it will all depend on the application and the choice of the um, liquid that, that we use in the mirror. And so different liquids would actually be more beneficial. I mean, I guess if you want to keep it, if you have to keep it cold, then then that would be helpful if you're going to do uh, an infrared observatory. But right. if you have to keep the whole thing warm, then it won't be great for infrared, but maybe it'll be better for visible and, and ultraviolet. That's right. Right, right. So then what is the, the current state of it of this project? Now you said you received a grant this f through NASA? Yes, uh, we received um, uh, uh, a couple different sources of funding from NASA uh, that allowed us to get started. Uh, and we also received funding for uh, doing our flight experiments. So we, we have more flight experiments coming up uh, on uh, a parabolic aircraft where we'll uh, test some more ideas and test different materials. Uh, we also have funding um, from the Israeli side. This is a joint NASA-Israel uh, project. So we're doing it uh, jointly with um, uh, Technion, Israel Institute of Technology, and also the Israeli Space Agency and Israeli uh, Ministry of Science and Technology, the Ramon Foundation. Uh, so there have been a fair amount of funding coming from that side, including a recent fairly large uh, European Research Council grant uh, to, to pursue this program. And so what comes, what comes next, do you figure? So we'll, uh, uh, we'll do more uh, parabolic flights and test out different frame architectures, different materials uh, that will be happening later this year and also next year. And then after that, we are actually planning to pursue an end-to-end -end demonstration uh, on board a small spacecraft. Wow. You know, uh, build a small spacecraft with a liquid mirror telescope, uh, launch it and, and show that the idea works in principle. So do you do you envision this being like a single spacecraft, not necessarily a second spacecraft floating in, you know, but like something that will just demonstrate that you've actually got the main lens, the main optics of it is your is your fluid, right? Uh, that small spacecraft will probably be just a single spacecraft to keep things uh, fairly simple. So we'll have an extendable boom that will house the instrumentation uh, instead of the uh, secondary spacecraft. And uh, the most we are hoping for at the moment is to create maybe a one meter liquid mirror uh, off of that small spacecraft. That would be, I mean, 
even a one meter telescope in space is a is a fairly big space telescope. That would be, you know, Hubble's only 2.4, 2.6. Yeah, 2.4 meters. So, so a one meter telescope, you're already in, in rare company. And do you, do you think that it would be able to fit in a fairly compact form factor? That's our hope. Uh, So we are currently working on uh, deployable frame architectures that would uh, enable such a demonstration, Uh, pursuing a, a few different options, but so far it looks feasible that's really interesting well you know before this we started we there was a whole other conversation we wanted to have about uh about artificial intelligence and autonomy and space exploration but but i think it's interesting enough to make it a separate conversation so i think i'll I'll, we'll shelve that for now and uh i'll let you get get back to work but but edward it was absolutely fascinating i really appreciate you uh being willing and able to talk to me about this about this project and i wish you all the all the best if you can you can help launch a 15 meter telescope that would be incredible and would be a game changer for for astronomy that's what we hope for wonderful well thank you so much and good luck to your project and uh let me know when you when you launch your telescope okay all right all right take care all right thanks a lot Fraser.